May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different here to start off this morning. We're going to play a little game called Name That Tune, or maybe finish these lyrics, okay? What the world needs now is love. Very good. All right. All right. I think that goes back to 1964 or so. Kyle Davis and Burt Backrack wrote that, according to Wikipedia. Uh, how about this one? All you need is love. You guys are good. You're getting the point here. All right, now I'm going to do one from my era, 19, 1985, okay? So, I'm going to sing this whole line here. You don't need money, you don't need fame. You don't need a credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden and it's cruel sometimes. But it might just save your life. That's the... There you go. All right, some of you know it. Some of the younger ones, maybe. <laughs> Huey Lewis and the News, 1985, featured on the great movie Back to the Future. Um, you know, the world sings about love and uh, longs for love. And in those lyrics conveys the idea that this is what we need, but the world disagrees about what love looks like, what love is, the meaning of love. There's different ideas about the meaning of love in our culture today. Uh, some people talk about love mainly as an emotional thing, a feeling, an experience. And certainly that's an element, that's a dimension of love. But for some people, that's, that's kind of what they primarily emphasize. Love as a feeling that sort of grips you. I fell in love. Something that happened to me. Overwhelming emotion. A subjective idea of love. And then there's a prevalent view today that, uh, that to love means that, that we just accept everything. That we can't say anything is wrong. We, we can't say that certain behaviors are wrong. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody physically, then everything should be accepted. And to not believe that is, is to not be loving. So that's another view of love that's becoming very common, very prevalent today. Christian idea of love is, is somewhat different than these prevalent views. Christian idea is that love is an action rooted in the will. It's not primarily about the feelings. It's something that is motivated by the will and it moves you to act for the good of another person. And that this goodness as a Christian reflects something of the goodness of the God we worship. And furthermore, that there is a standard of goodness, that there is a standard for right and wrong. And God has revealed this to us as creatures made in his image. God has revealed us the standard of right and wrong out of love for us. And so the Christian view of love is, I think we could summarize it. Love is acting for the good of another in a way that reflects the goodness of God. And sometimes uh, that means doing rather difficult things, things that we aren't comfortable with, things that we don't necessarily want to do. But out of love, we're called to do them. And that leads me to our gospel reading this morning, which is a difficult 
passage. Not to understand, it's difficult to put into practice. Where Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother, or we could say sister, brothers or sisters, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Not easy to do. If somebody has sinned against you, offended you, hurt you deeply, it is, for most people, not easy to have this kind of confrontation. But the purpose, he says in verse 15, is if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Or other translations, you've won your brother. That is the intent, is to repair a relationship that's been damaged. Uh, to bridge the divide, to mend this rupture that's happened in the community, in the body of Christ. And it's an act of, or should be, an act of love that reflects something of the Father's heart of love. Uh, God the Father wants to see reconciliation. In fact, just before Jesus teaches this in Matthew 18, He tells the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and they were secure on a mountaintop in a fold. But one of them got away. One of the lost sheep went astray. And this good shepherd could not rest. He had ninety nine in the pen. They were doing just fine, but he couldn't rest because of that one lost sheep that was going astray. And Jesus says, when the shepherd finds this lost sheep. He will rejoice over that sheep that's been restored more than the ninety nine that were that were safe in the fold. And he says, this is the father's heart towards those who are going astray. And then he tells this, gives this teaching about church discipline, about somebody who's going astray, somebody who's going in the wrong direction. And if that if you're aware of that and if they have harmed you. Or you see them going in a direction that's going to hurt them or the body, then sometimes it's appropriate to go to them, and um, and so he outlines these steps here. And the purpose again is to gain your brother or your sister. And then there's more steps to follow. It really gets harder. One on one is hard enough, but then verse 16, if he does not listen. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, now it gets very hard, tell it to the church. And I think in our context, we can say church representatives would, would be suitable here. Tell it to the pastor, tell it to the vestry, the deacons. And uh, if it goes this far in our polity, the bishop would be involved with this. And if he refuses to listen to the church, to the clergy, to the bishops, to those placed in authority over him, then Jesus gives this final uh, sobering step. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector which in this context means excommunication. They're not part of the community. Now, we read this and think about it. 
And um, it doesn't sound so loving. It, it maybe is more loving to just overlook a sin or sweep things under the rug, a significant sin or conflict. But, but really, the motive is, again, the motive is to gain your brother. Jesus is teaching this out of love for the sheep has gone astray and out of love for the church community. I read about a church where a pastor on the staff, this was a large church in California, a pastor on the staff, this is one of those typical terrible stories, but he was having an affair with the secretary. The staff knew about it. I don't know all the details of this, but the staff knew about this. And um, instead of exercising church discipline, according to Matthew 18, they let him stay in his position. A year later, 17 families, 17 marriages in that church broke up. They saw how sin was sort of cavalierly treated and things were swept under the rug. And it had a terrible effect on that church community. Think about the faith of the people in that church. What happened to them? Think about the children in those families that broke up. And so the motive here is love. Love for the person who has sinned against you or who is in significant sin. And you can see they're going down a road that's going to be very destructive. And love for the church body. It is acting for the good of another. And it's not easy. It's very difficult. As a pastor, uh, this is the most difficult stuff right here. It's hard sometimes to put together a sermon. Uh, It's draining to conduct funerals. Uh, When there's significant conflict in the body of Christ, or when somebody's going, plunging headlong in a direction that's very destructive sinfully, this is the most difficult stuff. Now, in thinking about applying it, um, and, 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 thinking, and, and thinking about applying it, we, we first of all have to, to consider, we have to use our wisdom and our discernment. Sometimes the, the wise and the godly course is just to overlook an offense. <laughs> I mean, you have to ask yourself the question, how severe is this? Uh, how important is it? Proverbs 19.11 says this, a person's wisdom yields to patience. It is to one's glory to overlook offense. We don't want to be one of these folks that are always collecting grievances and somebody does me wrong or says something about me that I don't like that I'm going to have to make a big deal about this and I'm going to have to get out Matthew 18 and go to them. Now, we don't, that's not what this is about. This is about when there is significant strain, when there's somebody in the church and they've done something to you and it's just always there. You go to bed at night and you're thinking about it. You wake up in the morning, you're rehashing what they said, what they did. You drive your car down the street, you're rehearsing it again. And you get to church and you you hope that they aren't there. You don't really want anything to do with them. That's when there's a significant issue and rift. And and that's when I think Matthew 18 needs to go into effect. And we do it prayerfully and we do it out of love and sensitivity. And with trembling and fear because this is one sinner going to another. But we, we do it out of love. Okay. And uh, if we ignore this teaching, then then uh, some terrible things can happen to the person and to the community. It's a difficult thing to go through. But Jesus gives some promises here to a a church that is faithful to this teaching. 
he says, um, the authority of the Father will be with you in your decision making. That's what verse 18, I think, is about. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The authority of the keys. The context here is church discipline. And again, I say to you now here, it's about prayer. If two or uh, of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for my by my father in heaven. As you go through this process, as you pray, you can trust that God's will will be done. He'll give you wisdom. And you can trust that the presence of Christ is uh, is with you For two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. So one of the ways that we express love is by pursuing reconciliation when somebody has hurt us or going to that one who's going astray and is engaging in destructive habits or sinful patterns and uh, and out of love talking to them about them talking to them about it and 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 pursuing confession and pursuing uh, forgiveness in that context. So it's a love that acts for the good of the other. Now, in our in our passage from Romans, if you turn there, Paul's letter to the Romans, the theme here is explicitly about loving one another. And Paul teaches us that love fulfills the commandments. All the commandments, he says, verse nine, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments that, are, that is, as they relate to how we ought to treat one another. The, the, the first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Our first duty is to God, but then our second duty is to our neighbor. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Paul says all the commandments regarding how we interact with our neighbor can be summarized by that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus teaches this, of course, and we recite it every Sunday, that this is the summary of the law. And then it's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is after Moses has given all these law codes, all these codes of behavior, how the people of Israel are to treat one another, how you're to treat your worker who's worked in your fields, how you're to treat those who are passing by your fields, and you're not to to glean your field all the way to the edge. You're to leave a little for the poor and for the sojourner. And how, how, how you ought to behave in terms of your sexual relations and, 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 and what's, what's proper there. And all of it is summarized by, right in the middle of all that law code that can get very intricate and complex, right in the middle of it is love your neighbor as yourself. That is the heart of the law as it relates to our relationship with other people. So then that begs the question, and Jesus was asked this question, who is my neighbor? Then who is my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself. And uh, I think the answer there is whoever is next to you, whoever is near you, especially if somebody is near you in need, whoever comes within the frame of your vision has a claim on your love as a Christian. So, the neighbor is in your house. If you're married, the neighbor is your husband, your wife. 
The neighbor is your son, your daughter, your parents, your siblings. The neighbor is, of course, in the house next to you. The neighbor is in your workplace. The neighbor is in your school, sitting next to you, in the desk to your right, to your left. It's the people you interact with on you on a daily basis. The neighbor is the person who is near you. And especially if they need help, that's the Jesus' teaching on the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor has a claim on you as a Christian. Owe nothing to anyone, Paul says, except to love them. So we, as Christians, ought to love our neighbor. And that means action. Once again, it's about an action for the good of the other. An action that reflects the goodness of God. And the church shines oftentimes in, in, in times of difficulty and tragedy when we get out and we help our neighbors. I don't know if you saw an article or heard reports about this uh, grocery store chain in Texas. Some of you are from Texas. I know we have a couple people here from Texas. The grocery store chain is H-E-B. And um, H-E-B stands for here everything is better. <laughs> But after the, after the hurricane, H-E-B made a decision that they're going to open up as many grocery stores as they possibly can in order to keep it open for their neighbors, to feed their neighbors. And so 60 or so grocery stores out of 83 in the Houston areas, area opened up hours after the hurricane. And there were thousands of H-E-B employees, according to the article I read, something like 2,000 employees from other parts of Texas came down to Houston. And they worked in these stores and they stayed on strangers' couches to, to help their neighbors. They have a mobile kitchen that they've taken out to these disaster areas to feed people. Thousands of people a day they're feeding. And uh, on the side of the truck of HEB, it says, helping our neighbors in need. But what's not, what I didn't see in the article is, is the fact that this company, HEB, was founded by Christians on Christian principles, and the owners are people of deep Christian faith. And they're living out that call to love your neighbor as yourself. To love those who are hurting. To do something good for them. But then, of course, we're called to love our neighbors in our everyday life, not just in these terrible tragedies that happen, but in our everyday life. We are to act for their good, reflecting something of God's goodness. And then we are to do no harm. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So here's one way to test our love. This is a litmus test for love, maybe. That is, am I harming my neighbor in any way? Am I doing anything to the person who is near me, next to me, the person that I interact with on a daily basis? Am I causing them harm? And there's different ways of doing that. Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Here's some very obvious ways that you can harm a neighbor. Committing adultery, murder, you shall not steal. But then we get to this one. You shall not covet. Coveting, I heard a, a very simple explanation of coveting. Coveting is wanting more of something you already have enough of. And part, one of the Ten Commandments, and it's not a mistake, I don't think, that God put this in there. You shall not covet. 
Well, coveting is something that goes on in here, in the mind. And it's a matter of the heart. And God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's ox. Or today we would say luxury car or second vacation home or something like that. But it's something that's happening in here. And Paul says that these infractions is about harming your neighbor. So there's something about coveting that can lead to harming your neighbor. Um, First of all, it can mar the relationship with the neighbor. You want what they have. And there's something harmful to the soul of a person who does that, who covets. But it also creates some cloud, I think, over the relationship. But then it can also lead to some of these things that are very explicitly, or we would say very clearly wrong, things like adultery and stealing. So harming another person is not just about your physical actions. It's about what's going on in your thinking towards the person. And um, and so that's another way we might apply this litmus test. Am I harming my neighbor or my how are my thoughts towards this person? OK. Love sums up the law in terms of how we're to treat other people. And it's not just about our outward actions. It's also about what's going on in our hearts, in our minds. Now, I think many people at this point. Christian or non-Christian would agree with much of that. That we ought to love our neighbor. And it needs to be sort of the deep instinct. I think Christian or non-Christian can appreciate that. All we need is love. Yes, Paul, go. But then he gets to this section here at the end. Where he starts to make distinctions about behaviors that are part of the light. And then behaviors that belong to the darkness. Behaviors that are contrary to the law of God. And then behaviors that are pleasing to the Lord. And we would say in our culture, or many people would say in our culture, wait a second, Paul, you've been talking about love, and now you're you're making distinctions about behaviors. And and, and isn't isn't that not loving to make those kind of judgments? But Paul doesn't see any contradiction here at all. He says to Christians here, it's time to wake up. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us not walk. Or excuse me. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, verse 13, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Don't you like it how Paul oftentimes starts these lists of sins, these vice lists with like the ones that we can all agree with? Yeah, those are pretty bad. Those are what the other people do. Orgies for crying out loud. Okay, we all know how terrible what was happening in Roman culture at this time, you know. Okay, yes, Paul, we got it. We understand drunkenness is is wrong and that's that's bad. It leads to bad things. Sexual immorality. But then a little bit down the list, sensuality. Thinking about sensual things, being preoccupied with sensual things. Living a, a life that's really geared towards 
sensuality. And then quarreling, arguing, fighting, and jealousy. He puts it all in the same category of this is what it looks like to walk in the darkness, to walk according to the flesh. And we as Christians are called to take those things off and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And one motivation why we ought to live this way is he says, salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. And the early Christians believed that the Lord could come at any time. And uh, maybe we've lost some of that in the way that we think about how we ought to live. Maybe we've, we've lost some of this sense that the early Christians had that at any moment, the Lord of love could appear, could return. Um, I don't know if Anglicans live with that sense the heightened sense of the nearness of Christ's kingdom. I read that, that in uh, the, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, it gave directions to calculate the date of Easter up to the year 2199. And then in 1732, by an act of parliament, it enabled, this act of parliament enabled the American Episcopal Book of Common Prayer to calculate the church calendar as far as the year 8,500. So, uh, that doesn't necessarily encourage Anglicans to live with this lively expectation that the Lord could come back at any time. But, it, but it's true. He could return at any time. And whether He returns or, as the hymn says, or calls us home, the ultimate salvation of the Lord is nearer now than when we first believe. And we ought to live in light of that truth. Live as people of the light. And so, um, just as a way of application, let's ask the, the Lord what He would have us to do in this matter of growing in love. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow the Lord Jesus Christ to influence your personality. Allow His Spirit of love to infuse your spirit. When I first came here uh, in 2010, there was a, another Anglican priest who uh, contacted me and he said, Ben, would you like a mentor for a season? And I said, absolutely. And uh, I knew this man by reputation and also I had some interaction with him. And I knew he was a man of prayer and that he had a close relationship with the Lord. And uh, he was part of a church he had been the pastor of a church that was vibrant and alive and, and growing. So I jumped at the chance. Here was a man who was wiser, a better pastor than, than I was and am, and much farther down the road. So he said, would you like me for a couple of months to check, with, check in with you once a week? And we'll just talk. So that's what we did. And so once a week he would call me and he would say, how's it going? What's been going on in the church? And then he would share from his experience and he would give stories about what he went through and his insights very wise very astute and I listened to him because I trusted him because I knew he was better than me and then in the at the end of the conversation he'd always ask the toughest question which was now Ben what do you think you should do what should you do in light of his experience, in light of his insight, 
Now it's your turn. What should you do? How should you live? How should you respond, rather, in these situations? And the point is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is much better at this love thing than we are. He is the expert at it. Uh, He is the man of perfect love. And one way that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ is that we listen to what he says. And we come before him in prayer. And we ask him about growing in love. And I think if we do that, he will bring scenarios up to our spirit. And then he'll ask the question, in light of who I am, he's not only given us knowledge, but he's given us the spirit. And in light of who you are, what should you do? How should you live this out? How should you walk this out? How should you apply it? We don't have a whole lot of codes in the New Testament. Nothing like Leviticus. (laughs) Nothing that says in every situation, this is how you should show love to the person. But we have Christ And we have His Spirit. And Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let Him influence you. And He'll help you grow in love. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to be influenced by Your personality and Your Spirit in this life. And I thank You, God, for so many Instances in this congregational life where I can see you at work through the love of your people. This is a loving congregation. And I pray that you would help us to continue to walk in that and to grow in that. I pray that we will listen to that question. How do we respond? What should we do in this matter of love? God, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for demonstrating ultimate love to us at the cross. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.